Well, welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I have Joe Sprangle joining us. And Joe has a book out called Humanist Manufacturing, a humanitarian approach to excellence in high impact plant operations. And what we want to say to all our listeners, it's not just for that. It's really across the board, being humanist and a better humanist um, uh, leader. Okay. And Joe, good day to you. Thank you. Uh, good day to you as well. I'm happy Appreciate to join that. you today. Well, and you are joining us from where? In uh, Stanton, Virginia, in the part of the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. Beautiful part of the country. Thanks for taking this time to impart some of your wisdom uh, on our listeners about this. And I'm really looking forward to this. So let me let our listeners know a little bit about you, Joe. It's Dr. Joe Sprangle, DBA, is an associate professor of business at Mary Baldwin University. He's also the founder and principal consultant of Emanuel Strategic Sustainability. That's the website we're going to have a link to. So all of you can go there to learn more about Joe and his teaching. He blends his academic and industrial background to redefine the role of manufacturing to an industry and uh, effectively and efficiently balances environmental, financial, and social success that leads to more inclusive and sustainable local economies for all community members. Um, He's a fascinating uh, individual, and he's earned his Doctor of Business Administration degree from Lawrence Technical University. He also holds a Master of Business Administration degrees from Spring Armor University, Spring Arbor, and a Bachelor of Business Administration from Eastern Michigan University, and an Associate degree in Mechanical Engineering Technology. So you're speaking with someone that knows what he's talking about here. Um, Joe, you know, to kind of kick this off, you wrote this book to bring more of a humanistic approach to manufacturing. And I want to say to everybody listening, don't let the word manufacturing uh, discourage you from listening to this podcast, because this is really more about being more humanistic in the whole organization. Can you tell our listeners a bit about your background and why you believe shifting the focus to being more humanistic will result in greater productivity in the workplace? So I spent uh, nearly 30 years in manufacturing shortly after I got out of high school, and I began at the laborer level, and eventually I worked up to uh, various maintenance, engineering, and supervisory positions. And ultimately, I was in a role of a plant manager for a few different operations. And simultaneously, I was also attending uh, college in the evenings and weekends. And I earned a bachelor, or, I'm sorry, uh, business and uh, engineering degrees uh, from an associate to a doctorate, like you mentioned, while working full time. So the great thing is that allowed me to apply what I was learning right away. And I, I really enjoyed that aspect of, of going that way. And then I tell people jokingly that I had a midlife crisis and decided to become an academic. I didn't really have one, but uh, it always makes for a better story, right? So, but I transitioned to higher ed for the last 15 years, of which five and a half years I was a dean. And the balance of that, I've been teaching uh, undergraduate and graduate courses. And as I studied and both in the university settings and just reading trade publications and so forth, I really had a focus on what I call organizational excellence. I I was into change management, leadership principles, management, 
strategy and so forth throughout my career. I was wanted to be part of one of those best plants uh, that Industry Weeks does or the Shingo Prize or something like that. And while I didn't accomplish that, I, I feel like now I'm trying to help other organizations achieve maybe my, my dream. So working vicariously through them. Well, you're still teaching. Yeah. You're still, you're still teaching. (laughs) Um, and I think it's, you know, this, I think our listeners have heard about the humanistic approach. Um, there's, uh, the, you know, when you look at corporations, you can look at the balance sheet. Um, what is the human capital? Uh, balance sheet of a business. And we look at human capital. We don't often realize business owners how important that element is, you know, because when you list your assets on the balance sheet, it's like hard plant equipment and all this stuff that you own, right? But when you realize that if you have turnover, high turnover in a business, and especially in manufacturing, which it does seem to occur more likely there, maybe at a place like Amazon, where people are being pushed to get packages, to get things in boxes and so on and go down assembly lines. You have that. You you gave a list of manufacturing companies that have been exemplars um, and have laid the foundation for others. Can you comment on some of these leaders and what they did differently to be focused on this human element at work? I think sometimes always real examples are more important than anything. Yeah. So a commonality between all these leaders was they embraced the power of business to create a better world. And as a result, they gave their workforces kind of a unifying purpose or what Simon Sinek is called the why. Mm-hmm. And um, it really helps to develop a deeper level of employee engagement. And his TED Talk on on why has been viewed over 61 million times. So it's certainly, you know, the concept resonates with people. And um, but and, on, and was- just just an insight, um, just on my little show. He's at over 250,000 downloads about the interview wow. I did with him on why. <laughs> so, and you can see why he's had, would you say 9 million? Is that what you said? No, it said it's been uh, viewed 61 million times. 61 million times. So I yeah. added to that. <laughs> I added to that. <laughs> so go ahead. I'm sorry that I interrupted you, but I want to let my listeners know there is a podcast with Simon Sinek on Inside <laughs> Personal Growth. So yeah. that's right. Good, yeah. good to know. And but each of them has also been a trailblazer, kind of following a path less traveled, I would say. So Ray Anderson was the founder and CEO of Interface. Unfortunately, he's passed away since, but he had a spear in the chest epiphany after reading the Ecology of Commerce with a declaration of sustainability by Paul Hawkins. And that led him on the path to taking Interface to becoming initially a zero impact company. And right now they're working on becoming a, a regenerative manufacturing operation. And then Mary Barra is one that I profiled and I've just been amazed with the work that she's done at General Motors and, and what they're doing right now to help create a safer, greener and better world. And then and what about y- Yvonne Chenard at uh, Patagonia? What what would you say about him? I've seen him. Yeah, he doesn't he doesn't speak a lot before a lot of groups, right. but I've read his book, um, Let Them Play or whatever it's called, but it, it, he's a fascinating man who started this a long, long time ago. Yeah. Uh, well, he was a mountain climber that, that 
I think he described himself as becoming an accidental business owner. That wasn't his plan when he started out. Right. One of the things that he found is that uh, by making these decisions that were best for the planet, ultimately, they also positively impacted the bottom line. And that wasn't ultimately of the importance to him. Obviously, he wanted to have a viable organization. But his first focus was, what can we do uh, as an outdoor apparel company and, and equipment supplier to make sure that we're not harming uh, the environment, which we enjoy so much? And so right. he, he created this you know, uh, purpose for his organization that, that gets people to buy, or I'm sorry, to, to want to work for their organization. People feel good about buying their product because they know, A, it's going to work well. Uh, B, it, it's, it's coming from a company that has values that, that align with them as well. So, you know, you know, and from a manufacturing standpoint, he also used to put out ads and he still does, you know, if you, you know, if you have a jacket and you don't need this, don't buy my jacket. Right. Right. And, exactly. and, and I really don't think that was a ploy to get people to buy no. his jacket. I really believe he sincerely believed that, you know, some people say it's greenwashing, you know, just, he just did it. But the point is, is that he was saying, look, the energy that it takes to manufacture a jacket and get the supplies and all the rest of this stuff, when you look cradle to cradle, right? If you look at your closet, like I've looked at mine and I'm using this as an example, I probably got 10 or 12 jackets in there, right? Do I really need another Patagonian jacket? jacket right <laughs> and then the question is do i trade mine in because he's got yeah. a program where you can actually go and kind of recycle these yeah, exactly these, these jackets um i believe that's extremely smart yeah well for him it's not greenwashing because the man just put the entire company into a trust to protect the environment moving right. forward right so right he's not worried about money you know right. y- yvonne chenard is not going to be having problems with, <laughs> with that but yeah. he, he's used business in a manner that is now going to be perpetually helping to create profits that will then also benefit uh, the environment. So well, socially really responsible. And I exactly. think when you talk about manufacturing and, and people, um, there's, a, there's a guy uh, called, it's a nonprofit called Clean the World. Now, it's a great manufacturing story for you. We manufacture all these bars of soap that go into these hotels. And people only use them once. Exactly. And then they throw them into boxes. And this guy takes 2,500 pounds a day and he recycles them and makes them into soap that can be used by the homeless. And he sends them all around the world. Right. And I keep thinking to myself, it's like there's this whole process to grind them and put them on the manufacturing line and then resent them. And, and, you know, they, they come in these every day, they get thousands and thousands of pounds of these soaps from Marriott and all these places. And yeah. you look at it and you go, that is socially responsible at its very core. Right. Yeah. Um, and I loved it. In your book, you outlined six phases of humanistic manufacturing. Um, I'd like for you to briefly mention the six phases because okay. we don't have time in a 40 minute podcast to cover everything, but we're going to get, I'll let my listeners, well, we'll get to them and then give the 10 humanistic commitments of living humanistic values um and i think if we did that and then i've got more questions that lead in and follow into that all righty well it starts out with phase one where uh, we look at the humanist commitments that are listed in the book that you mentioned and 
looking at them from a perspective of better understanding them, adopting them, and then integrating those into uh, the organization. And, you know, are these something that, that can align with what uh, a business owner or leader is trying to accomplish? And then moving to the second phase where I recommend that an owner or a leader actually kind of does a self-assessment of their leadership approach and what is their current vision, mission, and values, and uh, how do they align with the commitments? And, you know, is there, and as we go through different phases of our life, our career, you know, something that might have been important when somebody started a company might be different now. And and just kind of having this moment of, of reflection to say, okay, you know, here's where I am today. Here's what's going to be important for me moving ahead. And then to repeat that process with the executive team so that ultimately you end up with this really highly cohesive and effective leadership group. And then I put a lot of focus on robust internal operations uh, in phase three. And really what that is, is that we want our employees to be successful in the essential work that they carry out uh, organizational-wide, make sure our customers are cared for, that we care for each other, that both internal and then external stakeholders as well. And then phase four is to develop what, you know, is an employee-centric workforce where each member of the team, the organization as a whole can move towards uh, reaching their full human potential. I've, I've been at so many organizations where we just use a fraction of what people can bring to the table. And I've seen so many examples where when when organization leadership starts to to utilize employees in this manner, they find out that they have so much more capability than they ever dreamed that they would have. And then five is is going in and and determining well what's going to be our place in uh, in our community what what's the impact uh, that we can have to create a positive um, opportunity to help create thriving community ecosystem for us and so examples of that could be maybe we hire people on the autism spectrum that 85 percent of them are unemployed but yet they have tremendous talent that could be utilized um, in, in different things like that that you know, instead of using up resources and leaving an abandoned factory behind, we're actually somebody that's committed to creating thriving um, with with those that are part of the community in which we live. And then six is taking all of this knowledge and then working through developing a strategy and then working through the tactical plans and then all of the change management plans that are, that are required of that. And it's been kind of my experience, a lot of people can't or I shouldn't say can't, they, they just, they don't walk through that in a really strong, logical process that, um, you know, you have books on leadership, you have books on change management and so forth. But part of why I wrote this book was to say, okay, here's where you are today, status quo. Here's where you might want to be five years from now. And this is what I see as the, the steps or the phases to help uh, accomplish that role. Well, it's a great, it gives people a great opportunity to kind of think of this as a model and all those yeah. phases. Um, and you can see how they all interplay with one another, the way you explained them. So thank you for doing that. Yeah. But, you know, in phase two, because we're going to get into a little bit deeper here, um, you focus on leadership development and how do leaders embrace, I, I'm going to, hopefully I don't mispronounce this, the Ubuntu philosophy, <laughs> um, which is, and the why uh, is it so important to shifting the entire culture to this? First, explain the word and the origin of the word. If, if I mispronounced it, repronounce it. <laughs> um, and then 
Um, how do you get this entire cultural shift? Yeah. Well, and I, I may pronounce it wrong as well, but uh, Ubuntu philosophy, it's an African belief that we are selfhood to others, that, you know, no one man or woman is, is an island. And kind of, you know, right now we have kind of this me generation and, uh, you know, I, it just kind of goes counter to, to what I think is, is a good organizational culture. And um, William E. Flippin Jr. was an advocate for justice, ecumenism, and grassroots organization, where he saw it as a deeply personal philosophy that calls on us to mirror our humanity to each other. And ultimately, it means that we're treating each other with openness, personal dignity, unquestioning cooperation, warmth, and willing participation. And wouldn't we all want to work in that sort of environment, right? And so uh, Bob Chapman is one of the people that I profiled in the book. And he moved his organization, Barry Waymiller, from uh, uh, what they called a we-centric organization into a, um, I'm sorry, a me-centric organization into a we-centric one, where they treat everybody like family. They they realize that the, the better they treat their employees, the more productive they are. The employees are also going to have a better life uh, when they leave the place because they're not going to go home angry, frustrated, tired, you know, feeling like they've been abused all day. And so... Um, it really is just shifting to, you know, we're all in this together. We should be doing this in a manner that helps one another, that lifts everybody up. And, you know, that's the kind of organization I'd like to work in. And I know I've worked at my best when I had that sort of situation going. Well, it's refreshing to see that uh, organizations, whether manufacturing or not, are embracing these shifts yes. uh, in consciousness associated to have a better work environment. Because they realize that the people that are working in them, as we've evolved as a species in society, aren't willing to accept the old ways we used to work, which was command and control. Exactly. And, you know, I've, I know uh, Daniel Goldman has not been on our show, but everybody knows emotional intelligence from uh, Daniel Goldman. Um, and, you know, you talk about it in the book and you say that. The leaders with greater EI, emotional intelligence, um, and are that 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 they're they're better at leading, right? They're better at leading. Right. What are some of the other benefits that we get from people that are more emotionally intelligent leaders, uh, other than just the fact that, hey, there? I know I I just did one on uh, experiential intelligence. Right. And, and it was a podcast that was done and it was fascinating because you just said two minutes ago, you don't even know the people you're working with and the, what they bring to the workplace. And they bring all these series of experiences in life that can really help the organization evolve and certain elements of it evolve. And I want to talk about emotional intelligence, but I think that whole experiential intelligence thing, it's another whole factor that's important. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the benefits that come out of being more emotionally intelligent is that we can be more empathetic during difficult conversations that are inevitable when you're, when you're going through a change process. It helps us to manage our emotions and, and those of our coworkers, in particular during uh, stressful and overwhelming situations. People always wonder how I could stay so calm. Well, I probably wasn't completely calm on the inside, but I realized that, you know, if the, if the 
the leader of the organization runs around like a chicken with his head cut off, everybody's going to start doing that. That's not going to get anybody anywhere. Um, it's also helpful in, in resolving conflict resolution because if people understand that we are empathetic, they, they might be more willing to open up to us and helps us to motivate and coach our workforce. It increases employee cor- collaboration potential and psychological safety is so important if you want to make the kind of change we're talking about becomes more likely in, in this type of environment. And ultimately, if we understand the emotions that precede uh, thought, it's it's critical to help ourselves and others to improve themselves. And we're more likely to, to achieve more tremendous success in our personal and professional lives if we are led and can develop a stronger emotional intelligence across our organization. Yeah, I I, I really love the the terminology and the work that Goldman did around emotional intelligence. And I always look at it. I know if we're going to heal this world and heal our businesses and heal society in general, that's going to happen as a result of people becoming more compassionate exactly. with one another. Um, if if we all could learn, and, and people are going to say, well, you're talking about the Dalai Lama. Yeah, the Dalai Lama talks about being more compassionate overall, right? But the reality is that's the truth. I mean, you and I on a previous call talked about Herb Kelleher and yeah. Southwest Airlines and his whole love thing, right? Well, mm-hmm. most businesses don't want to mention the word love in it. So if you're right. not going to wor- mention the word love in it because you think it's too woo-woo, then you better be thinking about how emotionally intelligent your leaders are and how compassionate those leaders can be to listen and understand the needs of the people who are working for you so you don't have turnover as a result of you know having somebody who doesn't understand those things. And you, we've all heard of this. You and I were just speaking about Simon Sinek before we got on the call. And it's the whole why thing, the mission, vision, values, purpose, the why of our business. Why do we exist? Why does this business do what it does? Um, can you give some examples of manufa- manufacturing businesses that have successfully shifted their culture by focusing on the why, the why they have existed. Now, we did talk a little bit about Yvonne Chouinard just a minute ago, but there are others besides Yvonne Chouinard. I remember Zappo Shoes. He's no longer with us. He died in a um, fire in a home, Uh, but Tony was really big on the why of why Zappos existed, Mm -hmm. which is why who the hell would ever thought we would have bought a pair of shoes <laughs> off the internet, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but that's a good example. Tell us some others, though, Joe. Okay. Yeah one of one of the wonderful gifts that I had while I was writing this book was um, a man named Fred Keller, who's the founder and chairman of Cascade Engineering in Grand Rapids, Michigan. You know, he, he, he said he was a child of the sixties looking to live up to the principles of having a business to work for everyone. And so as, as I went through this process, I would, you know, I ran the phases by him. I ran the, the, the initial draft of the book and so forth. And what really resonated well for me is that he said, Hey, you know, yeah, I mean, you, you got, it. this is what I was doing as I was developing my organization. And so. Some of the things that they have done is that, you know, anti-racism was important to them. They 
they'd implemented diversity, equity, and inclusion long before it became a recent emphasis to be, you know, a politically correct standard practice. You know, they, they're one of the largest PCORs in the world. They had a program called Be Nice. I think they still do, I should say. And they're committed to mental health assistance to their employees and families through a, a four-step action plan. They hire people that are what they call returning citizens, somebody that's done previous time uh, for being incarcerated for, you know, some sort of mistake that they made. I don't know about you, but, you know, I've made mistakes in my life where probably I could have ended up in prison. Thankfully, I didn't. But imagine only, you know, um, being uh, judged on the, the, mis- the one, maybe the one significant mistake you made that you can't find work after that. They found that, hey, we could create employees by by allowing this opportunity. They're definitely veteran-friendly. They're committed to helping uh, people transition out of the military career into a manufacturing industry. And then they have a program called Welfare to Career, where they look at what can they do to help move people out of, um, you know, a poverty situation into a meaningful career. We often, in our society, we, have, we give people enough to get by. And then if, boy, if they want to make a difference in their lives, then we cut them off and they, they can't bridge that gap between, okay, I want to get off of assistance, but I can't afford to get to work because I don't have a car and so forth. Well, they put programs in place to help people to be able to, to get to that job and to, to eventually get to a point where, okay, now I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm over the other side of that bridge and I, and I can move forward. Sounds like a great company. Diversity for women and so forth. Yeah, it looks like they looked at everything, right? They they really did a good job of it. It it reminds me of an interview that occurred quite some time ago. But if you've not heard of this company in um, in uh, Michigan called Zingerman's Deli, Ari Ari uh, (laughs) Weinzig, right? Weinzig, and I'm going to let all of my listeners know because I think. It's a perfect example in one of our podcasts, because I did two with him, that um, I learned so much about how he shifted the culture of what would normally be just a normal deli, right? But turned it into a multi-multi-million dollar operation and then wrote books about his management style and philosophy. Um, So that's another great example of how you have good emotional intelligence, how you use your why and your purpose to get your people behind you so that things um, coalesce into something wonderful, right? So, you know, you say in phase three of your six phases, you talk about building overall operations. And I don't want to miss out on this because operations are operations on an assembly line and they're operations inside um, anywhere in a company. What does it mean and how do companies build an effective business operating system? You call it a BOS. I remember the guy that's, he's got the EOS, Entrepreneur Operating System. But (laughs) what is the BOS? Well, I don't think I've coined a new term there. But for me, it kind of brings uh, to mind Dr. W. Edwards Deming and his 14 points of management. You know, a particular quote that resonated with me is that a bad system will beat a good person every time. And I've experienced that. I've, you know, I've been in places where, you know, it seemed like the proverbial free ring circus where you'll be the next person the owner fires because you couldn't turn water into wine or turn a sow's ear into a silk purse. And, um, you know, what, what happens is that, uh, they don't put 
a really strong, robust system in place, like in the Toyota production system, uh, some know it as lean manufacturing, where they don't attribute failures to breakdowns in individuals or the fault of an individual. They attribute it to a breakdown in the process. And if, if you don't have strong, robust processes, then you can't do the things that uh, ultimately delight your customers and, and allow you to carry out what is important for you as an organization. And so for me, it's kind of a combination of the B impact assessment by B lab, the UN sustainable development goals, Deming's principles and um, the Toyota production system. And it's going to be a little different for every organization, but to me, it's, it's kind of bringing those different elements together in a, in a way that allows us as an organization to carry out our business in the most efficient and effective manner. Yeah, the Toyota, uh, I was sent a couple of books by a gentleman who uh, their company was chosen by Toyota to actually win an award for the, that processing. Mm-hmm. And I had the pleasure of meeting him. He was in Denver and has a huge window manufacturing company. Um, and Toyota chose to work with them, which I thought was kind of interesting because I didn't even know they did that. But, you know, my listeners, probably of all listeners are if they are they're 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 familiar with the betterment corporation uh the b corp and in manufacturing what impact would you say this b impact assessment would have uh on overall operations and what shifts are you seeing in organizations focused on social and environmental impact that they have on the world because you know, to get a betterment corporation, you just can't go out and get the designation. You first have to start off. It, I think you have to be in business a year, or at least two years right. uh, to actually get that um, certification or to actually apply as a betterment company. But there are a lot of betterment companies out there. What do you see happening on the manufacturing side and the non-manufacturing side? Yeah. So uh, Cascade Engineering is the largest B Corps in the world, uh, or one of them, I shouldn't say not the largest, but, um, and <coughs> a lot of what I see in that movement is, is led me to one really critical conclusion. And when you combine this for profit and nonprofit, the best of each together, you end up with it, what they, some are calling the uh, for benefit sector that it, it's really an attractive employment option for Gen Z and our younger millennial groups and, and even old guys like me that, yeah. you know, we, the company still wants to make a profit, but they're doing it with an environmental or social purpose. And so Chenard, uh, they were one of the first people that lined up to be a certified B Corps. And, um, you know, they, they, in essence, what we're trying to do is do well while doing good. And so a comp, you know, somebody works for a company, you, you're making industry wages as opposed to what sometimes are lesser in the nonprofit world. But it really excites people because they're doing something that for whatever, you know, purpose that they have, they're, they're helping someone, um, you know, every day in the work that they do, you know, each day uh, that they're employed. And an example of this is I had a great opportunity to, to spend some time at a company called Impact Makers and, Michael Perron states that, you know, they're kind of the IT and management consulting business that's the B2B version of Newman's own, where they put all their profits towards charitable organizations. And while they're not manufacturing, 
what I found in the recurring theme of the interviews with these people that were the various stakeholders. So employees, management team, um, their, their customers, their board members and so forth was just this great pride in the work that they were doing because they knew they were helping the community. And, and so they had this really defined why and it, it allowed them to, to be able to say, okay, you know, we're not just saying we're doing this. We actually have verification that we are the type of company that's making a difference in, in the community where we operate. And I, and I see more and more people, even smaller businesses headed that way, Joe, they're, right. they're really realizing, uh, I don't, you know, you can't blame this on COVID, but a lot of people said COVID was kind of a, this jolt that many people and many organizations needed to really understand this. Um, And I would agree it was one of the jolts, but I think it had been leading up to it. There'd been so many changes in our world um, that created it and and just an optimal opportunity to embrace it. Um, And, you know, you talk about cradle to cradle design. Uh, and the specific impacts that this innovation has on manufacturing. Also, could you give the listeners some examples of organizations that are really doing a good job in cradle-to-cradle design um, that's having a reduced impact on the environment? Um, I know for a fact that, you know, I look at Apple and I say, okay, Apple's got a great return policy. Where does all that go? So, you know, I turn in a computer. Does it end over up in Taiwan and somebody rips out all the the chips and the component parts to to remanufacture another iPad or iPhone or something? But, you know, this whole cradle-to-cradle design thing is so important when you look at packaging, when you look at and everything. And everybody's focused on packaging. And I'm like, well, yeah, you're focused on packaging, but what about the fricking product that comes in the package? Yeah. Um, where does that go afterwards? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, this cradle to cradle design is the shift from linear consumption where we just use something and then we trash it. You know, I think in six months we, we dispose of most everything we purchase. Uh, very, there's very few things that last, you know, beyond that six month cycle. And in cradle to cradle design, they're looking at things like a biological cycle or a technological cycle. The biological designs are things that are naturally biodegradable, like the, I don't know if you remember the sun chips bag from many years ago. Uh, it was compostable. Uh, they, they thought it was going to be a great idea. It wasn't well received because it made a lot of noise, but technical designs reutilize chemicals, metals and oil based materials that are reused and recycled in a closed system. And so. An example of this is Interface, who's, again, one of the companies that I profiled. They actually receive all of their used carpet back that people are willing to send yeah. them. Yeah, Anderson made, was a leader in that. He was, oh, yeah. He's he's kind of my, became my uh, – I don't have many heroes, but Ray Anderson is one of them. So. Ray Anderson really was to so many people. I mean, um, it, it, he, he was phenomenal. And when yeah. I worked with Larry, Larry Wilson at Wilson Learning, we always use the Ray Anderson story around yeah. how he recycled the backs of carpeting and the fibers in the carpeting, right? Yep. Yep. And, you know, for that time, because I'm going about 15, 20 years, that was really a monumental kind of thing to do. 
Because yeah, most people this, just end up in the dump, yeah. right? And bury it in the ground. A lot of this started in the mid-90s when most people didn't even know what sustainability was. And right. You're definitely a pioneer. Yeah. But they're now a third-party carbon-neutral enterprise. So, you know, they they're, they're neutralized their carbon impact across their operations, across all the avenues of their business, and even throughout their value chain. And now they're working on being a regenerative organization where, they, you know, their factory will positively contribute to a forest, for example, using biomimicry design. And H2 Green Steel is another example in Bowdoin, which is in northern Sweden. They're a company that's working to produce green steel that uh, reduces the CO2 emissions by up to 95% but when compared to traditional steel making. So uh, water and heat become their primary emissions by replacing coal with green hydrogen, for example, in, uh, instead of fossil fuel um, electricity. So there are just a couple of many examples of companies. How that- many How many would you say, Joe, because you got your finger on the pulse here? Um you know, usually when you get in government involved in this to create legislation that forces somebody to do something, it's taken them a long time to actually change their ways. Um, do you see many of these people now willing to shift their ways without compliance to some rule from the EPA or some other governmental body organization that's saying, hey, you've got to go here, or they finally realize that they're losing consumers because they're manufacturing a certain way. And we have more people that are uh, environmentally sensitive and want to buy products like that. I mean, what would you say overall is going on? Because it just seems so challenging to get your head around. Yeah. Sadly, it's still not the norm. Um, You know, there are these leading exemplars that have started to implement this into their manufacturing operations. Part of it's, you know, in the book, I talk about a lot of different challenges that companies face. And, you know, I've been in so many companies where, I mean, they just were doing everything they could to survive from one day to the next. Um, Maybe they don't have good cash flow and so on and so forth. But smart companies start to figure out, well, what can I do to save a little money here and then put some of that aside? And then, you know, and it's talk about, you know, in the book about eating that elephant, right? You got to eat it one bite at a time. You can't go from where I'm at today to, to being wholly sustainable overnight. It's mm-hmm. going to take time, it takes money, it takes effort. and uh, But it's certainly possible. These are all companies that, that are examples that show that, yeah, you can you can accomplish this if you want to. Um, and I, Is I think- there, I mean, without investing billions into retooling the whole manufacturing plant, I mean, a, a t- an example you just said was reutilizing let's just say the cutting oil from a machine, yep. uh, an actual machine. That's a, uh, a C, what do they call them? CDC machine? C, CNC. Whatever. CNC. Yeah. So yep. out here in California, I worked with a lot of people that were at CNC machines and you'd see all that cutting oil going back through there and they're making bolts and they're making things for aircraft and they're making, you know, whatever it is that they're making. Right. Um, but, is that an example? Just let's take that one little example yeah. of things that people can actually use and recycle um, pretty effectively before they dump it down the drain or they have some yeah. environmental agency come and pick it up in a 55-gallon drum yeah. and haul it off somewhere because none of us really knows where hospital waste goes. None of us really knows where <laughs> CDC machine 
marketing stuff goes. Um, the average person listening out there doesn't have a clue. And I would probably be one of them because I know that there are huge companies, Joe, that make uh, huge sums of money just picking up hospital waste. Right. Well, where the hell yeah. does all that go? You got all these parts you've cut out of people and stuff and skin and blood and, and all this stuff. Yeah. And it's like, are you guys just incinerating that? Um, I don't know. Yeah. So you touched on a, definitely an example of something that could be a small initiative, right? You can figure out ways to, to filter that, that coolant, um, um, so that you can reuse it, cutting oil, um, or you just figure out ways to reduce the amount of w- uh, water that you consume, or you figure out a way to recycle the water so that you're buying less uh, from the system. Um, it can be as simple as changing out light bulbs. I mean, um, many companies that I go into these days, they still have old uh, light bulbs in them that are very energy consuming. Yeah. And generally, in a very short period of time, a few lights here and there starts to add up to some some pretty good savings. And, well, I love to see Walmart when they came and started putting uh, solar panels on their roofs yeah. and then opening up their stores with more lighting. And, yep. you know, I've seen plenty of these examples, but it just doesn't seem fast enough, soon enough, you know, but I, I get it that it's very expensive to do. Um, but it seems like most of them have made a creed or a motto, or a, I should say a creed, that they are going to um, start down this path, and you're starting to see some shifts in the way in which they operate. Yes. Um, and I and I think, I, you know, I commend people like Amazon, for instance, saying, hey, we're going to replace our whole fleet with electric vehicles. Well, I mean, it, there's, there's some doomsayers out there that'll say, well, hey, you still got to generate that power somehow. Is it being generated right. from coal exactly. burning plants? I mean, you can, it, it's, it's whoever is looking at the cradle to cradle design that says, Hey, really how much more energy efficient is this going to be? Is it going to save how much in um, um, gasoline and resources yeah. versus what it's going to consume in electricity? Um, and I'm all for all of that, but I don't think sometimes I think the decisions are made a little bit hastily because it does get a little greenwashed. It's like, Hey, yeah, we've got all exactly. electric vehicles, right? You know, well, is that really better or not? And I'm not saying I'm disagreeing with electric vehicles. I'm just saying it's a great thing, but I don't think they really look at everything. It kind of reminds me of everybody was up in arms in New York city because the horse manure was piling up. So, you know, the solution was the automobile. Well, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> The automobile brought some other problems with it. Right. And I, I feel like we're going to have some of the same, uh, impact with electric vehicles because all of a sudden now we need all this battery production what are we going to do all these used batteries where are we getting all this lithium you know there's 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 kind of a theory about putin's war that ukraine has a ton of lithium and that that's what he wants Uh to get his hands on so you know i i just i don't know what to think anymore i i just kind of let my listeners know (laughs) this is kind of some of the stuff you should be talking about right so exactly. look, to wrap the show up, you got a great website. I want to let the listeners know it's a manual uh, strategic sustainability.com. That's E M M A N U E L S T R A T E G I C sustainability S U S T A I N A B I L I T Y.com. There's some free resources there. Can you mention the resources and what would you like to leave the listeners with relative developing a more humanistic way to lead 
develop and foster associates and teams within organizations that are being led more humanistically. Okay. So yeah, on, on the website, there's uh, various podcasts that others that I've done and a couple of TED Talks that I did on uh, kind of reinventing the industrial uh, manufacturing, uh, industrial complex and and one on humanist manufacturing. Um, there's you can also find uh, a graphic of the, the six phases, uh, more detail. We, we actually didn't touch on the humanist commitments, but uh, you can find more detail about what the 10 humanist commitments are that I, I based the book on. And then uh, if compelled, I encourage people to look at uh, the webpage that talks about my book. And um, I'd love to have people buy a copy, uh, see what they can do to implement any or all of it. it it's not an all or nothing sort of thing. There's there's a lot of different uh, good uh, suggestions in the book. And ultimately, I'd, I'd be happy to help organizations if they want to make this transition. Well, and I think importantly, they can just reach out to you. There's an email yeah. there, a contact form at your website that so they can reach yep. out and contact you. Here's the book. It's not expensive. Go to Amazon, pick up a copy of this book. Um, Joe is available to you to speak about some of the things we've talked about or even more. I think the the challenge that we face today is a lot of people like, where do you start? And what I would say is Joe would be a great place to start to have a discussion. Um, he He's not going to charge you for the first discussion uh, right. to just talk with him and yep. say, these are my concerns. These are my current values. This is what I'm trying to do. This is what I want to do. And he's going to be able to guide you and uh, give you some more resources. And who knows, maybe you're going to hire him to consult you to do what you need to do. But Joe, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth. I think this journey for managers and leaders is about the personal growth of being more humanistic. Now, that whole personal growth thing means you have to embrace emotional intelligence. You have to embrace more compassion with your employees. You have to look at ways to have the values and mission and purpose of the business align with the values and missions of the individuals. They have to feel proud of what they're producing at the end, what comes off the assembly line, and know that what they're doing is good and they're contributing something good to society. All of these things lead up and culminate into an organization which is humanistic. And Joe, thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth and sharing some of that. Thanks for my listeners for hanging in and hearing the podcast. Any last words? Just, uh, I don't care how technological we get, we're always going to need the human element. And the better we treat humans, the more we tap into that enormous pool of wasted potential, the the better off we're all going to be. And, and that's the key thing I hope people take from this. Inspiring, Joe. Thanks for your time. Thanks for talking about humanistic manufacturing and associated topics. Thank you, Greg. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this podcast on Inside Personal Growth. We appreciate your support. And for more information about new podcasts, please go to InsidePersonalGrowth.com or any of your favorite channels to listen to our podcast. Thanks again and have a wonderful day.